Please be seated and turn to the book of Ephesians this morning. The letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians and actually wrote, um, it's a cyclical book that he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, This is a book intended for uh, that whole region originally and then of course all believers since that time. Samuel Taylor Cooleridge said that the book of Ephesians is the sublimest communication ever made to men. Sinclair Ferguson said, from beginning to end, Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace, the privilege of belonging to the church, and the pattern of life transformation that the gospel produces. So I open with Ephesians 1, verse 1 and verse 2. This is the brief introduction. This is where we will spend our time this morning as a greater introduction to this new series through Ephesians called Grace to You. And that's the name of this sermon as well. Please hear as I read God's holy word, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to work intensely upon us as we read your word and seek to apply its truths in our lives. Guide us in this study of Ephesians for all the weeks that we may spend in it, and especially now as we open the book And look at the first two verses. Give us eagerness to learn more of you. Deepen our love for Christ. Transform us by your grace. Transform our congregation, your church, for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've asked you this question before recently, but I ask it again because it applies here. Have you ever visited the Grand Canyon? Have you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and tried to take it all in? In 2000, Sherry and I visited the Grand Canyon. It was in April that year. Uh, We had never seen it before, and we were scouting a mission trip for the church. And so we took the rental car from Phoenix and drove up to Flagstaff and then on to the canyon itself. And A.J. was just a baby at that time, carried him literally in a little baby backpack Uh, on my back as we walk to the edge of it, and we're just blown away by the vastness of the canyon, the depth of it, the size of it. We just stood there for, for minutes and hours across different places along the rim just to see how massive and great it was. Later in July, when we took the trip with the team, two different uh, Econoline vans filled with mission team members, we made a stop at the Grand Canyon. Most of our team had not seen it before, and so we wanted them to take it in as well. We blindfolded the team members who had not seen it and walked them to the edge of the canyon. They then took off their blindfolds, or we took them off for them, and there they were. Their expressions are etched in my memory. Uh, The descriptions they gave initially about what they had seen, uh, all of it resonated with the idea of the greatness of the vastness, the beauty of it, uh, so vast, they were amazed and astonished. Well, one commentator that I studied reading for the preparation for this series said, 
that the book of Ephesians is the Grand Canyon of the Scriptures. And what that commentator was referring to is the breathtaking, beautiful, and apparently inexhaustible view that one takes in when they look upon it. And he said that the book of Ephesians is just like that. The book can be divided really in half when we see the very beginning set up what is true about God and what God has done, what God has done for us and for the church. The second half of the book, the last three chapters, what do we do in light of the grace of God shown to us, forming us as a people, as a new community of believers? The first three verses or the first three chapters are about doctrine, those foundations that we need to know what is true, things we could not surmise on our own with just observation. God has to tell us. And that's what the first three chapters of Ephesians does, doctrine. And then duty flows from that. What would we do in light of what is true? That's chapter 4 through chapter 6. What is true? Chapters 1 through 3. What to do? Chapters 4 to 6. John Stott, that great commentator of the Bible, said, The letter to the Ephesians is a marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. Nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to consistency of life. It will move us to worship when we see the picture of God and what he's done, but it will also move us to action to respond to what God has done. If you lack a clear picture of God, Ephesians will give it to you. If you want to know about the grace of God through Christ, Ephesians will explain it to you. If you have a sense of insecurity about your relationship with God, Ephesians will assure you. When it comes to God's glory, to his grace, to your salvation, the security of the church, God's plan for the church, how to live life, how to view marriage, Ephesians addresses it all. Kent Hughes, he wrote this, Ephesians carefully, reverently, prayerfully considered will change our lives. It is not so much a question of what we will do with the epistle, but what it will do with us. Ephesians, in summary, is a grand depiction of the amazing, transforming grace of God at work in his church, and by extension, the world. So today we are introduced to the book of Ephesians through the two introductory passages. First, let's answer the question, who wrote Ephesians? And how does the author, used by God's Spirit, shape this letter? How does the author's experience with God's grace shape what is said? Of course, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1, and we see the answer to this question, the first part of verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's Paul who writes this great letter. He was Saul first. Saul who became Paul. The story of his conversion comes to us in the book of Acts. We should remember that as a congregation having trekked through Acts over the course of a couple years. You remember the story of his conversion. This is a man who is a recipient of the grace of God. That will shape the passion he has, again by God's providence and ordination through the Spirit, that Paul would be able to come 
as a recipient of this great grace to then expound upon the grace of God. God gives him this as a personal experience and then, of course, the particulars of his teaching that unfold in the book of Ephesians. Saul, who became Paul, a recipient of God's saving grace. Here was a man who is a rigorous, self-righteous, judgmental Pharisee. He lived his life trying to prove he was better than others in every way. He was a religious and a national zealot. He was hateful, and his hatefulness manifested itself in murder. He understood the spectrum that runs from hate to murder. He partook of murder, setting up the murder of others, the imprisonment of many, the oppression of many. He operated out of a hatred for mankind. He helped hunt down Christians and had them imprisoned and killed. He was there when Stephen was stoned and just watched over the cloaks of the murderers as they committed this terrible act. He was as far from God as one could be, and he deserved the full wrath of God Almighty. Yet, Saul was born again. Saul was a recipient of the great grace of God. He was a man who needed God's grace, and he received it and was totally transformed when he was on his way to go to arrest more Christians. That's where Christ met him and gave him his commission. Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any would be found along the way belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul is met by Christ himself and commissioned by Christ. Jesus says to him in Acts 9, verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And through that time of blindness and the servant Ananias, Paul is commissioned by Christ to be Jesus's mouthpiece, to be a sent out one on his behalf, to be an apostle. In Acts 9 verse 15, the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That was to Ananias who then brought that message to Paul. Kent Hughes, who I referred to earlier, typifies or characterizes these opening verses of this opening statement. Paul's opening words celebrate a self that had been liberated from the crushing bondage of ego included by God's sovereign decision in the apostolic band and imbued with divine authority and purpose. This transformation happens, and Paul is the author of this book, this Paul who was Saul and had met Christ and was commissioned by him. This commissioning is important. Notice in Ephesians 1, the descriptor for Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is an apostle. This is a capital A, apostle. Um, The word apostle could just mean generically messenger, for sure. But this is Paul the apostle. We know by the way he's described and what he does, how he meets Jesus and is commissioned by the resurrected Christ himself, 
and by other references Paul uses when talking about apostleship related to himself. Apostolos simply means sent one, but in this case, he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is uh, another level of apostle. That's why I say capital A, apostle. In the book of Galatians, probably the first epistle that Paul wrote, he writes in the first verse of that book, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Paul puts himself with the other apostles who had received their commission to apostleship through the resurrected Christ. This is an important statement because it's equal to being a prophet in the Old Testament. Looking back at the finished work of Christ and speaking with God's authority, whereas the prophets in the Old Testament look forward to the finished work of Christ to come and speaking with God's authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul refers to his apostleship again. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So God proves Paul as an apostle through his ministry. And Paul again refers to his direct commission from the risen Jesus. Where did Paul derive his confidence to speak this way? The author of Ephesians. Well, the first verse, again, we find it there in that final phrase of the first half of the verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That's where Paul gains his confidence to speak to the Ephesians. He's speaking as an apostle appointed by God, by God's immutable will, something that could not be stopped. By his calling, he was aware of God's strength working through him because it was by the will of God he was carrying out the ministry that he was carrying out, this apostolic ministry. The effect of Paul knowing God's calling upon him was to give him great courage in the face of terrible circumstances. You probably probably remember many times in the book of Acts when it seemed like death was on the line and it would have been better for Paul to retreat. A mob was facing him, literally, several times. And he even wanted to go out into the mob and speak to them. What gives somebody this kind of courage and this kind of confidence? It's knowing that you are living out the calling that God has given you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So whatever's coming next, know it's coming from someone who is courageous in God because he has his commission from God. That would make us pay close attention to anything else that comes in the epistle. The one who's writing it was sent by God to speak on God's behalf. And that person speaks with the confidence that only one who has the authority of God could speak. That's what the apostle does as the book of Ephesians is penned. And he's writing to a certain group, at least at first. Now, he had visited several churches in Asia Minor, and now he's writing from a Roman prison. The two-year time he spent in prison while he was waiting to stand trial of Caesar, this is when he wrote Ephesians. And he's looking back at the people of Ephesus that he knew so well, and really the people in that whole region that he met in the second and third missionary journeys. But Ephesus would have been one of his first loves. Why is this so? Well, on his second missionary journey, he stopped there very briefly, but saw uh, many conversions. Just a short stop, but yet the Lord brought about many souls coming to Christ. So on his third journey, when he came over, then he decided 
to stay in Ephesus. And there he stood for two years. That's a long time to be in ministry somewhere. A special tie to the Ephesians comes with a long residency that he had there. Acts chapter 20 is that sad departure that he has to finally take away from the Ephesian people. Two years of discipleship, two years of knowing their family situations, two years of dealing with governmental challenges, two years of of dealing with the backdrop of Ephesus, that pagan city, um, in the shadow of the great statue of Diana and the temple there to her credit. Here is the apostle, the pastor of the church now, realizing it's time for him to finally leave Ephesus and go back to Jerusalem. We gather some of his passion for the Ephesian people and will appreciate the passion of the letter itself when we recall that departure. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, from Miletus, just a little bit outside of the city, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said this to the Ephesian elders, the shepherds of that church. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He's recalling their life together, a pastor speaking to his people he had been separated from now. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So when he writes Ephesians, He's writing to a people who he had visited in their homes. He knew them this well. In Acts 20, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. This is a a people he loved. In verse 24 of Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So in Acts 20, he knows when he leaves these beloved people, he will not see them again. And some years later, he's sitting there in Rome, probably facing his death at some point, knowing he will not see the Ephesians, and he pens this letter to the Ephesians. The closing scene, leaving Ephesus that last time, certainly was in his heart and in his mind when he wrote the book of Ephesians. In Acts 20, verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. After leaving Ephesus at the end of his third missionary journey, you probably remember he went back to Jerusalem. He spent two years in a Caesarean jail there before going to Rome, two more years in jail at Rome when he writes this letter to the Ephesians. But we're introduced now to the apostle who wrote this letter. We can understand how his experience of grace in his own life would give him added passion when he expresses the gospel in deeper terms. Now when writing the book of Ephesians, who does he write to? I've been saying their name multiple times. Let's consider more about them. In the second part of verse 1, 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The church in Ephesus is the original audience. However, we have reason to know because of manuscripts we have found that have descriptions of the exact same book to Laodicea and to other churches in Asia Minor. It was circulated. It was meant to be circulated. But the first focus of Paul's mind would have been these Ephesian believers. Ephesus was a hub city in the region, the most populous of the cities. And Paul was responsible for planting the church in Ephesus, remaining in residence there. He loved this church greatly, as we have seen by his departure in Acts 20. These were people who had many things pressing upon them. This is a pagan city, a city where they had prior religious connection to temple worship. There was the massive temple dedicated to Diana, but this place also had huge open-air theaters. They had a stadium that fit 25,000 people, huge political buildings. They had a regional bank that was the biggest in Greece at the time. Christians in Ephesus were mostly saved out of this pagan life and this pagan worship, constantly pressed by temptation from their former life. Yet these pagan-born hearers were granted the status of saints, it says, to the saints who were in Ephesus. When Paul writes to the different churches, he's writing to the Christians there. He's not writing to the rank-and-file citizens. Now, anyone could hear the reading and preaching of the word if they came to church or to the Christians. But he is speaking to those who are Christians in this region of Ephesus. The saints who were in Ephesus, the former pagan-born hearers who were pagan worshipers, are now called saints in Ephesus. What does it mean? Well, the word saint comes from holy ones or hagioi of God. The called ones or the separate ones or the separated ones or the set-apart ones. All synonymous with this term, hagioi of God, the saints of God. These are the people that are set apart by God for himself. To be a saint means that they are united to Christ. Anyone united to Christ by faith is a saint. To be a saint means you bear the righteousness of Christ that's been applied to you by faith. To be a saint does not have to do with people voting on your piety or your holiness after you die. To be a saint means that you have been saved by God through Christ and are in forever union with Jesus, making you set apart, making you a holy one because of the holiness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ applied to you. This letter is to Christians, to the saints who were in Ephesus. In this first audience, the Ephesians received this letter from Paul with that description. As Calvin and many others have said, no person is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no person is a saint who is not also a believer. You might say, well, I don't feel like a saint. It has nothing to do with your feelings. It has to do with what God has done through his son in putting you in union with him by the gift of faith he has given you so that you can lay hold of his son and have his righteousness be your own righteousness now insofar as God's perspective of you. 
So Paul was a person who understood grace and needed God's grace and received God's grace. The Ephesians were a people who understood they needed God's grace and received God's grace. They knew life apart from the living God. These were a people who knew what it meant to be rescued from pagan unbelief and wickedness, from lostness. These were a people who were under no illusions about their inherent righteousness, none to offer to God. They had nothing they could give to God. They knew their background, their memories were with them. They knew how unrighteous they were. And so all of this, called a gift of God, was so that no person could boast. And the Ephesians were chief of those who could not boast about this. They knew they could not be pleasing to God on their own. It had to take a work of God to be called saints, and they knew it. Not one Ephesian in the church would have heard Paul say to the saints who are in Ephesus and thought to themselves, yeah, man, am I a saint. It would have shocked them afresh about the gospel they had received. Yes, we're saints because of what God has done by his grace through Christ. It's the work of Christ on their behalf that gives them the righteousness that they need to be called saints. So this is what Paul calls them, saints. Paul narrows the description about the saints. You see in chapter 1 or verse 1 again, the second part, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So they're saints and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's not two different groups. It's the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints there, the Christians there, like all Christians of all time, were saved or redeemed through faith in Christ alone. But that faith manifested itself outwardly with fruit. So the word pistos here, in its form, is really, it contains a blended meaning. The faithful in Christ Jesus means first that they had faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, To be faithful according to God means we have to have Jesus' righteousness, perfect faithfulness, demonstrated. So faith in Christ, trust in Christ, is part of being faithful in Christ. But it also means something of their exercise or outflow of this faith in their life. So they were followers of Christ, in the sense, faithful. Exercising faith, but actively living by faith in Christ. Following Christ. It's a bit of a blended meaning when describing they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Yes, they trust in Christ, but yes, they're also following Christ. They're looking like Christ in their fruit. In Christ. Faithful in Christ. In Christ is a central concept in the opening chapters of Ephesians. It's part of the doctrinal foundation that works itself out in our actions. What is true and what to do. In Christ is what is true. What to do is to follow Jesus in our everyday actions. What's true is settled by God, by his doing. What we do is assisted by God through the same resource of grace that he gave to save us, but now it's an ongoing thing that moves on, and Ephesians plays this out beautifully. It's so practical how it pictures the foundation of God's grace being the thing that transforms us and then what a transformed life looks like in those, that second half of the book, living out what it means to be in Christ. When God looks at you as a Christian, he sees a person who is united to his son whom he loves. 
To be in Christ means that we are united to Christ in God's view. That's what he sees. The righteousness of Christ is the righteousness that a believer now possesses before God. In Christ, by Christ, through Christ, with Christ. These are all phrases that Paul uses in the opening chapters of Ephesians. Verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The application that this book pushes us towards is about this very thing. Living as faithful Christians in the sense used here with the Ephesians. Faithful Christians are those who have faith in Christ alone and seek to follow Christ as their example, as the one who emulates what a transformed person and transformed people look like. And that's the work that God does by his grace. Well, I've said some of this already. Let's look at verse 2 to gain an appreciation for what the letter is about on the whole. There's so much uh, richness and so much depth, it can't be captured in just one verse. But this simple phrase, it is a normal salutation that Paul might use, really embodies a depth to it that unfolds in the book, if you're familiar with the book. If you're not, you're in for a treat to see how these concepts unfold. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. The book, simply put, is about the grace of God in Christ that gives us peace. It's about grace for the church and for individual believers that make up the church and the peace that comes only from the grace of God shown to us as his people. Grace to you and peace is a setup for everything he's going to say. You're going to learn about the grace of God in Christ, and that learning will give you peace, a peace that passes human understanding, a peace that cannot be experienced in any way other than this kind of peace through God's grace. Grace and peace are key words in Ephesians. When you think of the word grace, uh, the kind of the high point for the teaching about grace in Ephesians comes in chapter 2, when Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and says, by grace you have been saved. So it's a picture of what grace is. Grace is favor that God gives to people who not only don't deserve it, they're dead in their sins, so they deserve the opposite. So grace is something that only God can give and no person can merit. It's his undeserved favor, his unmerited kindness, his unmerited acceptance and love. This is what grace is. And Paul's saying, grace to you and peace. Well, only can we have peace once we've received God's grace. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So grace is all about God's sovereign choice to bestow favor upon those who don't deserve favor because of the work of his son on their behalf. Grace and peace to you. Peace. In Ephesians chapter 6, the very last chapter of the book, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of peace. 
he's capturing the good news of Christ, dying for us sinners, applied by faith, produces peace. The gospel of peace. It produces peace with God. We now have peace with God, which is the beginning for any other kind of peace that there can be had. Back in chapter 2, verse 14 of Ephesians. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He makes peace with God's wrath by giving himself. For he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14 continues, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So grace is God's undeserved favor shown to you when you really deserve his wrath. Peace is that sense of settled safety that we have knowing that God is not mad at us any longer. Instead, because of Christ, he loves us. We're his children. That's the peace that you can have through God's grace in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Father and the Son working together with the agency of the Holy Spirit applying the work of the Son and the will of the Father. It's the Father and the Son working in tandem to will us to salvation and do the work of salvation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus is not just a simple empty salutation. It captures the whole of what the book will spell out for us. Grace to us in Christ that gives us peace that we long for and it's upheld by the Father and the Son. John Stott said the whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must be and do in consequence. What we should do as a result of this glorious doctrine of God's grace to us. Grace to you and peace be with you all. Ephesians will deepen our understanding of the gospel The gospel is clear throughout the scriptures. It's clear in the gospels themselves. And then Paul comes up alongside the gospels and explains the depth of everything that's portrayed there by Christ himself. It will deepen our understanding of the gospel in a way that is, in fact, transformational. It will change you when you truly understand God's grace. Now, it's true that you can become a believer, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and not fully get what that all means. I remember when I first became a believer, um, there was a sense in which I thought, okay, this is a bit of a strategic move. God saved me, now I can go tell all my friends. And I was focused a little bit on, on me somehow. Then over time, as I read the Bible over and over, it became more and more clear to me how little I had to do with it. In fact, nothing to do with it. It was completely his saving work that plucked me out of my way to hell for his own glory so that I could be his vessel and that he could, through that grace and that story, it's all him, could preach that message about Christ and see people transform likewise. And over the years, I keep hearing story after story about someone who came to faith and understood Christ and then over time grew in depth of knowledge about the fullness of God's sovereign hand of grace. It's all about him. No one can boast. Ephesians will deepen our understanding of the gospel in this way. The other thing we'll learn from Ephesians, 
The book of Ephesians magnifies the importance of the church. This isn't about a bunch of individual believers um, coming to Christ in a crusade and going forward, and it's all about them and Jesus. This is about the people of Christ. This is about the bride of Christ. This is about God's plan for the church filled with living stones um, built on the chief cornerstone who is Christ himself. This will give us a renewed sense of unity together, of solidarity together as a saved people. That's the work God's doing. He's saving a people for himself. Finally, Ephesians will provide grace-filled encouragement to follow Christ and obey his commands. We'll have plenty of commands in the book of Ephesians. But the beauty is, once you're set free from your efforts of self-righteousness or efforts to earn some credibility with God or some way to say to God, I'm worthy of the salvation you gave me, once you shake that idea, the commands show up as a way to evidence the fruit of people who are encouraged by God's grace or changed by God's grace. Grace-filled encouragement to follow Christ and obey his commands. That's what we will receive from Ephesians. Ephesians is a grand depiction of the amazing, transforming grace of God at work in his church and by extension, the world. Let's bow together as I lead in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for this book of Ephesians. We can see just a bit of its grandness in the opening verses. Just the simple introduction the apostle makes. Grace to you and peace. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Please guide us over these weeks and months as we open up this text and seek the message you have for us that we know will transform. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.